The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. First chapter of John, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Before we begin our study this morning, let's take a few moments in silent prayer to make sure that we are right with God, that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, in fellowship with the Lord so that we can uh, have the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, our instructor, who makes His Word clear to us uh, as we study it, to uh, make sure that uh, we're in fellowship, we confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You that uh, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not left without direction, but that You have given us Your plan, a blueprint for our lives that as we study Your Word, we can see exactly how we, the kind of decisions we should make and how we should live, that we might pursue spiritual maturity, that the product of our lives would glorify You in the angelic conflict. Father, now as we look into Your Word, we pray that You would make these things clear to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we um, took a little break since it was Memorial Day and focused on uh, some principles related to national entity, establishment truth, and principles, and role of the believer in a nation. This week we need to get back in uh, the Gospel of John. Dig my glasses out of my pocket here. John chapter 1. Take a little time to review so we get back on track with where we've been. John 1, one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now these five verses are very important to the understanding of the Gospel of John, for they introduce to us the person of Jesus Christ, not as the child of Mary, the descendant of David, or as, uh, or as as a prophet as expressed in the Gospel of Mark, but as undiminished deity, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Logos of God. Now I want to give kind of an expanded translation of these opening verses to give you the sense of what John is saying here. When space and time began, reason, logic, knowledge, that is the Logos of God, was already in continual existence from eternity past. And logic and knowledge were face-to-face, had a face-to-face relationship with God the Father. And reason, knowledge, logic, that is the Logos of God, was identical in essence with God the Father. He, the Logos of God, was in the beginning of space and time with God the Father. All things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, not one thing in the universe came into existence that has come into existence. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
And that light which reveals God to man shines continually in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Let's take a minute to remind ourselves of where we are in the gospel and review some of the principles and go into a little more depth as to what we've seen already. We are in an important section in the gospel, the prologue. Now, this involves the first 18 verses of the gospel. 1, 1 through 18. Now, John is building a case, as we've seen, looking at John 20, 30, and 31, where he says, These signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through His name. John is developing an argument. Now, the way we normally use the word argument is two people disagreeing. But there's a more technical sense to the meaning of argument. We talk about a lawyer coming into court and presenting an argument. He lays out a case. He builds a case. He marshals his evidence to prove each of his points. That's what John is doing. And just as in the courtroom when one lawyer may be examining a witness and ask a question, the other lawyer stands up and objects and says, improper foundation. Because before you get to certain points, you have to lay that foundation that what you are going to say later has a foundation behind it so that it's more understandable. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John lay the foundation for John's case. He's going to, we're, we're going to see that he builds a rigorous case to prove his point that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so I'm taking a little more time to go through these first 18 verses because they're so packed with meaning. John uses such a paucity of language. He is very economical under the filling of the Holy Spirit in his use of words that there is a tremendous amount that lies behind this that is not evident to us as we first begin to look at it. So we're taking a little more time to go through this. If we were to go through the whole gospel at the same rate, we would be here when the Lord comes back, whenever that might be. So we're going to, uh, we will speed up, but I want to make sure we really understand some of these important principles. The first five verses um, present the Logos as the ultimate reality of the universe. So the Logos as the ultimate reality underlying everything in the universe. This is very, very important because the emphasis here is not that when you push behind everything and you get to the ultimate reality, you don't find emotion and feeling and relationship, which are how modern man wants to look at these things because that's the product of our psychotherapeutic culture. We're taught to build on relationships and relationships are the main thing. But the scripture says the most important thing in life is how you think. In fact, the ultimate reality in the universe is expressed as logic or reason or knowledge and the expression of that in communication. That's why it is translated the Word. So the Logos is expressed in this first paragraph, the first five verses, as the ultimate reality of the universe. One, what we see in the first two verses is the relationship of the Logos to God. The relationship of the Logos to God. In the next, in verse 3, we see the relationship of the Logos to creation. It's in verse 3. And third, we will see the revelation of the Logos rejected. 
the Lagos rejected in verses 4 and 5. And then we'll come to B, which is the superiority of the Lagos to prophets. But let's review where we've gone so far. In the first two verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We see that John very carefully defines for us that the, God, the, the Logos is God Himself and the very core and center of the revelation of God. For word expresses not only the thought which underlies communication, but its outward expression. Word is very important. Vocabulary is very important because we think with vocabulary and our ability to think is limited by our vocabulary. The greater our vocabulary, the greater our ability to think. So it's very important to have an expanded vocabulary in whatever subject we're, we're studying. We need to master the vocabulary of that subject. Whatever field it is, whether it has to do with carpentry, auto mechanics, medicine, law, or the Christian life, each field of study has its own special technical vocabulary, and we all have to learn that. The Bible... And even in the Bible, there's a lot of vocabulary that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John and others take out of the culture and they give it a new twist and give it a new meaning, a technical meaning related to the gospel. For example, words like, like redemption and propitiation are words that were taken out of the average everyday use of language and given a little more technical meaning within the context of Christianity. What we see with John here is he does that with the concept of Lagos, taking it out of Greek philosophic thought and bringing it right here in the first verses, pushing back beyond the beginning and saying that ultimately the ultimate reality is the Lagos and the Lagos is a person, not an object or a thing. And we know this because in, this, in that second clause, the word was with God, we have pros plus the accusative, which is relationship. He is, the Lagos is face to face with God. So, so for the Apostle John, the search for truth, if you want to know ultimate truth, if you really want to understand the basic realities of the universe, then that comes only through a deeper understanding of who Jesus Christ is and a deeper understanding of what He has done for us. So the search for truth is not going to school and amassing a variety of academic degrees, but it is understanding doctrine and how doctrine relates to the person of Christ, relates the person of Christ to your life. So in this section we understand that the second person of Trinity, the Logos, possesses full deity. He is one in essence with God and He is also distinct. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was face to face with God. This tells us that the Word, the Logos, is a person that is different from God. But then we're, we see in the last phrase, and the Word was God. And we saw that this in the Greek is the word theos without the definite article. T-H-E-O-S. And in Greek, the definite article has a different meaning than in English. The definite article in English is the word the and would indicate one thing as opposed to any general number of things in that category. When you take the definite article away from a noun in Greek, often it is designed to emphasize its essence or quality so that we would translate this and the word was continually in identical in essence to God. That is a tremendous claim that the second person of the Trinity who we know is Jesus Christ 
is equal in every category of essence with God the Father. Now this created a certain amount of confusion in the early church. Now I don't mean in the church under apostolic teaching, but the church, the generation that succeeded the apostles. If you study church history, it's really interesting to see how rapidly the truth became clouded. Within, within one generation of the death of the apostles, they're really not clear on a variety of things. For example, uh, they didn't think analytically yet about a lot of doctrines. They didn't have the vocabulary. Just as in the Old Testament, Genesis 1, remember, God separates the, day, the, the darkness from the light, and the light he calls day, the darkness he calls night. And then as you go through the creation week, God specifies certain objects of creation with names, but he doesn't name everything. Then he creates Adam, and he gives Adam the responsibility to name all the creatures. So God begins by initializing human vocabulary, but it is up to man to use his powers of reason to think and to learn, to investigate, to categorize, and to give nomenclature to those things. So just as we read through the scriptures, you'll never find the use of the word Trinity. Trinity was a word that was coined. It was, it's the Greek or the Latin word Trinitas, and it was coined by a second to third century theologian by the name of Tertullian to describe what the Bible uh, teaches us about the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because in the early church, as they were going out to witness to the pagan Romans, they would say that they were monotheists, they believed in one God. Then somebody who was thinking scratched their head and said, well, wait a minute, you believe in God, the Father, you say that Jesus is God, and you say that the Holy Spirit is God. Wait a minute, and you believe in one God? sounds to me like you've got three gods. So this believer goes home and scratches his head and says, well, how do I relate these three? Because before then they just talked about the words of Scripture. They just quoted Scripture. They didn't have a very analytical understanding of the concept of Trinity. So it took them about 150 years before they got it right. We stand on their heads, so to speak, in terms of their thought, and we think, why did it take them so long? It's easy. It's the Trinity. Well, they didn't have the word Trinity. That didn't come along yet. So it took a while. So I want to take a little time this morning to give you a little historical background on this because I think it will clarify in your minds, the concept of Trinity, what it is and what it is not. In the diagram on the overhand, we have a triangle. That triangle, the three points of the triangle relate on the lower left to what's called modalism, the top subordinationism, and the lower right, tritheism. Tritheism is the belief in three gods. There's a circle inside the triangle labeled orthodoxy. If you emphasize at the bottom... If you emphasize the equality of the membership of the Trinity too much, you'll end up in either modalism or tritheism. If, on the other hand, if you in, emphasize the, the uh, unity of the members of the Trinity too much, you will end up either in modalism, which I'll define in a minute, or subordinationism. If you emphasize their differences, their uniqueness of their personalities and the distinction between them, then you will either end up in subordinationism at the top or tritheism at the lower bottom. That's just to kind of orient you to what these, what, how the diagram 
operates. And that's exactly what happened over about a 150-year period of history as they tried to work their way through these various concepts. They knew right away they didn't believe in three gods. You end up in tritheism if you emphasize the equality of the gods and their diversity. They're all three equal, and you have three distinct persons. That's what I mean by diversity. There's three distinct persons. If you emphasize equality and diversity, you're going to end up with three separate gods. If you emphasize their equality and their unity, then you end up with what is called modalism. Now, modalism was one form that that, that was very popular for a while, and I think most Christians are, are modalistic. Here's an overhead to show what modalistic monarchian it was called modalistic monarchianism, or also the Latin was patripassionism, which means that from patri the father passion suffer means the father suffered. You have God, and He just expresses Himself in three different modes. Remember, that's the key word for understanding modalism: three modes. In the Old Testament, God God revealed Himself as a Father. Then, for a period of 33 years, approximately 33 years, He revealed Himself as the Son. And then after that, he reveals himself as the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's not three separate persons with one essence. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. He is one person, and uh, he is one essence who, and one person expressing himself three different ways. That was called modalistic monarchianism. After a while, they realized, well, that's not right. So they, so they were emphasizing something too much. They were emphasizing the unity because there's really three different persons. So if you, let's go up here and not emphasize unity so much, or we'll emphasize unity, they went the other way, they dropped the equality and they emphasized the diversity, the difference between the two, and by emphasizing the unity and the diversity, they ended up in subordinationism. Now that was also called dynamic monarchianism. And that looks like this. See how much of that we get on the board. You see the title, Dynamic Monarchianism, so I'll run that up high. On the left, you have a, a broken line that beyond that's eternity past. God existed forever and ever and ever in eternity past. And this arrow down here indicates the creation of man and then the creation of Christ. The asterisks or the star at the bottom indicates the baptism with John the baptism. And at that point, God infuses the power, that's dunamis, dynamic power, the power of deity into the man, Jesus, and he is elevated to a god. So in dynamic monarchianism, because you're emphasizing their distinction, what you end up with is, is a Jesus who's really a creature. He's not fully God. And that was subordinationism. So these are the different views that, they, that you had in the early churches. They're trying to weave their way between these three different poles. Is is there, is there a difference between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Some kind of essential difference? Are they just different expressions of the same essence rather than three different persons? Are they three different persons with three different essences? Between That's tritheism. Between that, they just kind of uh, wobbled around. And it got to a point where there was a man I mentioned a couple of weeks ago named Arius. Arius was a presbyter down in the church in Alexandria, and he taught a form of subordinationism where God, there's eternity past, he creates Christ, so he viewed Christ as a creature. And then after that, he created other creatures in time. But Christ, there, there was a time 
when Christ was not. That's Arianism. It's the same thing that the Jehovah's Witnesses teach today. There's nothing new under the sun. They view Jesus as a God. So for Arius, Jesus was a God. Christ was a creature. He was a lesser God. He wasn't fully God. This created uh, quite a stir and, and upset his bishop, a man by the name of Athanasius. And Athanasius cre- uh, charged him with heresy. And so a church council was called by uh, the, uh, uh, that was to meet in uh, Nicaea. Constantine was the emperor, and here he had become converted to Christianity. And Constantine decides that with all this disruption among the Christians that he needed to resolve this, so it was sort of politically motivated. And they called this council at at Nicaea to resolve the problem of the relationship of Jesus Christ to God and to understand and formulate some kind of theological doctrine related to the person of Jesus Christ in his relationship to God the Father. Arius taught that the Son had a beginning. It was not eternal. Eternality is clearly a characteristic that belongs only to deity. Now, you don't have to get all of this down in your notes. It's just kind of an interesting sidelight to give you historical perspective on how theologies develop. Because people think that we're handed all this on a platter, but it's not. It developed over time. So Arius used a word, a technical word, that became technical to describe Jesus, it was homoousios, H-O-M-O-O-U-S-I-S. From homo meaning the same, you know, like homogenized milk, that's where we get that word homo, the same, it's all mixed up and identical. And ousios from, from the Greek word for being or essence. And, he, and um, that's one word. And uh, Arius used the word homoiousios. And by adding this one letter, changes the meaning of the word to like essence. It's not the same. It's a little different. And so... You know, the combination of two vowels together is called a diphthong. So this was called the Battle of the Diphthongs. And like most people, when you go to this conference, there were about 300 uh, bishops that were invited to attend. And there were about 10 or 15 in Arius's camp who understood what he was teaching. And there were about 4 or 5 in, uh, or 10 or so in Athanasius' camp and understood what, what he was saying and why he was saying it. The rest of them didn't have a clue. And that's just really standard among most church uh, disagreements and theological disagreements is that very few people really study the issues enough to understand why it's so vital. And Athanasius understood that Jesus had to be homoousios. He had to be of the same essence as the Father. Because if He was not full deity, He could not go to the cross and die as a substitute for our sins. As man, he identified with us and was our substitute. But as God, whatever he did had infinite and eternal value. So if he was just a man, just a creature, all he could do was die for himself. But only by being God could his sacrifice have infinite and eternal value. That's why the deity of Jesus Christ is important. 
That is why you cannot compromise on it one little bit. And Athanasius stood for it. And at the Council of Nicaea, they concluded with the following statement, which is known as the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father of all, the the Father all-governing, Creator of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father as only begotten, John 3.16, that is, and now they're going to define it, from the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, that is uniquely, gener- uniquely begotten, not created, of the same essence, there's our word, homoousios, same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and in earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, becoming human. He suffered, and the third day He rose and ascended into the heavens. And He will come to judge both the living and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you grew up in certain uh, more formal churches or ritualistic churches, then maybe you recited the Nicene Creed on occasion as you were growing up, and I know some of you have. Now you understand where it came from and what it means. Most of the people who go to church and every Sunday morning they recite the Nicene Creed don't have a clue as to its significance, where it came from, or why it's important. So we've advanced your theological education a little bit so you have capacity to understand the rituals that go on in many churches. The conclusion was that the council, by way of conclusion, the council at Nicaea did not invent the doctrine of the Trinity. That's inherent within the Scriptures. But it was the first clear articulation of the doctrine in the history of Christianity getting it down into the right verbiage. And all definitions of the Trinity subsequent to that have built their definitions on what was said and finalized at the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea didn't invent these things. Some people claim that in various books. It just simply recognized what was already inherent within the Scriptures. So let's look at the doctrine of the Trinity in the Scriptures. First of all, point number one. The unity of the Godhead is stated clearly in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel. This is a very famous passage, especially for Jews. It's called the Shema because the first word in it is the cal imperative of the word to hear or to listen, Shema. Which means S-H-E-M-A. Listen up. Give me your attention. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, and hardly any ritual that, that the Jews perform begins with something other than this. I mean, this is very common. Every ritual they perform begins with this statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's the Hebrew word for one, which can also be translated unity or unique, one of a kind. The Lord is unique. The Lord is a unity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So, Deuteronomy 6.4 establishes the fact that there is a unity in the Godhead, that God is one. But the plurality, a plurality is also indicated. That there are plural persons in the deity. For example, Isaiah 48.16 says, 
Come near to me. God is speaking. Come near to me. Listen to this. From the first or from the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. Now the Lord God has sent me. Me is God speaking. So now you have the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. There are three divine persons spoken of in Isaiah 48, 16. Point number three. The pronouns are the the name of God. The name of God also indicates a plurality. The name of God, Elohim. In Hebrew, the I am ending is your plural ending. And we would translate it normally God's, and it's translated that way in some passages where it's not referring to God. It's referring to false gods, and the word is Elohim. Now, today we live in an age when a lot of people in theology are getting away from, from, not that they're getting away from the Trinity, but they're getting away from some basic understandings of language, and they want to go too far in reaction the other way. Uh, It's all part of the postmodern movement where you can't put too much stress on language. And what they want to teach is that, that Elohim really doesn't indicate any plurality in God. It's a plural of majesty. That sometimes in Hebrew, a plural ending is placed on a noun in order to give it emphasis or power or, or demonstrate its majestic nature, something like that. So Elohim really can give us no clue about the plurality of God. It only indicates His majesty. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that comes down to our fourth point, and that is that the pronouns, the pronouns used in relationship to God are plural pronouns, also indicating a multiple uh, multiplicity of personality within the Godhead. For example, in Genesis 1.26, when God is going to create man, God says, then God, Elohim, the plural, said. Okay, now, if we're not to understand that as a real plural, but just as a plural of majesty, it would be singular. And we would have a singular pronoun, let me. But we don't have a singular pronoun. You have a plural pronoun. Then God said, Elohim said, let us make man in our own image. Now, who, who's the other people? Does he have a mouse in his pocket? No. God is talking about himself as a trinity. Three persons. Let us make man in our image. He says it again. According to our likeness. So the emphasis here between us and our, is that there is a plurality in the Godhead. Point number five, we can say that at least two clear personalities exist uh, in the Old Testament. In Genesis 31.11, we have the very well-known passage where God wrestles or God comes to, um, to Jacob and tells him how to, how to uh, handle the sheep and the goats. It says, Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. Genesis 31.12. And he said, Lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, who anointed, where you anointed a pillar, where you may devour to me, now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. So here we have the angel of God 
saying that he is God. In verse 31.11, he identifies himself as the angel of God. In other passages, it's the angel of Yahweh. Genesis 31.13, identifying himself as the God of Bethel. In Judges chapter 6, in the story of, of Gideon, you have the angel of the Lord appear to Gideon. And then Gideon sacrifices to the angel of the Lord and calls the angel of the Lord God, and the angel of the Lord refers to himself as God. So you have these two different, different personalities present, the angel of the, of the Lord and the Lord God. These are two clear, different personalities. Both are given all the uh, attributes of deity. Zechariah 1, 12 and 13 is another very important passage. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou have no compassion for Jerusalem? So here's the angel of the Lord speaking and saying, O Lord, and addressing the Lord of the armies, the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 13, And the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words. So you have these two personalities here in Zechariah 1, 12 and 13 indicating that the Old Testament clearly has within it the revelation that God exists not only as a unit, but with a multiple personalities. Point number six. Point number six. All three members are present at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist in the river Jordan. God the Father announces from heaven in Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God descends on Him. So at the baptism of Jesus, you have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in the form of a dove, and you have the voice of God the Father coming from heaven. So all three members of the Trinity are mentioned there. Point number seven. In the Great Commission to the Church, to the Apostles, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So all three members of the Trinity are mentioned in Matthew 28:19. So it is very clear from the Scriptures that the doctrine of the Trinity is embedded within the Scripture. And it, it was one of those things, along with other doctrines, that God left to the church, to theologians, to pastors and teachers, as they studied the Word to begin to develop, categorize, and systematize the teaching of Scripture to fully understand it and to give to it technical theological vocabulary. That's a review of the first two verses of the Gospel. Then we come to verse 3. This is the second point in the outline, the relationship of the Logos to creation. The Logos is not part of the world at all. That's what you find in your Eastern religions like um, Hinduism Hinduism and uh, uh, Buddhism and various other other, religions. Eastern religions. Now, there's also something interesting relating Eastern religions to to the Trinity. In Eastern religions, they're all founded on something um, called monism. Monism means that ultimate reality is one. All is ultimately one. Now, we would say that within the doctrine of the Trinity, this is very important for people in in the history of ideas and the history of thought. The uh, two big problems that created a lot of controversy over the, um, over the generations in philosophy was the relationship of what they called the one and the many, or unity and diversity. See, if you emphasize unity too much, then you end up saying ultimate reality is one, and that's monism. 
Now, a great example of monism came in the movie um, uh, The Empire Strikes Back. That was the second movie in the Star Wars trilogy. Remember, Luke Skywalker goes out to, uh, to, to the planet where, where Yoda trains him. And Yoda is just a master of Shinto uh, ideology and Shintoism. I heard George Lucas interviewed one time, and he said that he specifically modeled the teaching, style, the, teaching the content, everything of Yoda on, on the, um, the, the religious teaching of the samurai warriors. So it's very religious in its connotation. So there's one scene where Luke is going to go into the forest and he's going to do battle with Darth Vader. And he goes in and he has this battle and he pulls back his lightsaber and he cuts his head off. He goes over to the decapitated head and he opens the visor. When he opens the visor, what does he see? He sees himself. There was a Beatles song that expressed it well. I am you... You are me, he is she, we are one. That's monism. That all of this real distinctiveness, division in our culture, or the way we think, is merely illusion. Ultimate reality is one. And that's Eastern philosophy. How does that relate to, to practical living? Well, think about it in terms of, of political theory. If ultimate reality is one, then what matters is the one, or the state, the total body, the individuals have little meaning whatsoever at all. And you can see how that plays itself out in Asian culture. Because Asian culture gives no significance to the individual parts. It's just the one that matters. And then on the other hand, if you emphasize diversity too much and the distinctions, then you really would end up politically in anarchism, in, in anarchy. Because... All the intervals, everybody has equal say and equal vote, and it doesn't really matter what the whole wants. Now, how do you reconcile the two? You have the unity and diversity. Well, of all the world's religions and all the world's ideology and all the world's philosophies, there's only one that has resolved the conflict between the one and the many, unity and diversity. That's Christianity. Because in Christianity, ultimate reality is the trinity which is one and three together at the same time. He is, God is unity. He is one. He is diversity. He is three. And they exist co-equally. And politically what that means is the state cannot usurp the authority over the individual and the individual does not usurp authority over the state. There is a balance. It also plays itself out in marriage. It's a very vital to understanding the principles of marriage because what this indicates is that there can be Role distinctions within any kind of an organization without destroying equality. Because in the Trinity, you have three persons who are co-equal in their essence. They have identical essence, yet they have role distinctions. The Son is subservient to the Father. The Holy Spirit is sent by God the Father and God the Son. Now, how does that play out in relationship to marriage? Well, if you go back and listening to the rhetoric of the, um, of the feminist movement, what they want to say is to equality, you cannot have equality and role distinction at the same time. Because if you're going to distinguish between the roles of male and female, then what you're ultimately saying is that they're not equal. 
Now, if you're a feminist and you buy, you must buy into that logic because that's the logic that underlies modern feminism. And what modern feminism is saying is that role distinction and diversity and equality are mutually exclusive. So therefore, if that's true, then Jesus cannot be equal with God. Ultimately, every position goes back to theological presuppositions. And you have to think as a believer to understand these things. The Trinity resolves all of these problems because, of course, it's the perfect expression of reality. And this is why, if you think about it, picture in your mind a map of the world. Okay? Draw a line in your mind between all the nations and countries and cultures and ideologies that have been affected by Christianity and those that haven't. Immediately you exclude most of Africa, uh, all of Asia, and a few other places. That's the difference. Well, they never understood any... You go to those Asian countries, they never understood anything about equality, individual rights, anything like that. Couldn't get there from their starting point. Impossible to get there from their starting point. No true concept of freedom. Now, make a distinction between those areas in the world that were affected by Protestant theology and those that were just impacted by Roman Catholic theology. Now you have a difference between northern Germany, Holland, the Scandinavian countries, England, United States of America, Canada, versus Central and South America, Southern, Eastern Europe. Where did you have freedom? Where did you have prosperity? Where did you have advancement? of the individual, only in those countries that were impacted by Protestant theology. Then you go to England and the United States because they pushed in their thinking. What, the point I'm making here is that this, this isn't something that just came up today. I mean, the understanding of this, the importance of the Trinity and the distinctions between the persons of the Trinity and their ultimate, rea- their, their ultimate equality and how that plays out in terms of ideology has been understood for centuries. This is what the Christians at the time of the Reformation worked out and how it impacted their political thought. And then that, in turn, made the difference between why some countries experienced more freedom and more prosperity and more advancement than other countries. Theology is not just something abstract. Theology is what impacts your marriage, relationships between men and women, and political ideology. It's all vital to understand this and to unpack it from the Scriptures. All of that is part of the relationship of the Trinity. Now, when we look at the relationship of the Lagos to creation, we see that the Word is not part of creation at all. He's distinct from creation. And that's what we see... Uh, and that's not what we see in Eastern religions, where everything is part of nature. It's called pantheism. God is equal to all of His creation, and God is one. That's part of mysticism. That's why mysticism inherently comes out of uh, any kind of religion that has this, this, this thought to it, that um, all reality is ultimately one. That's why it was, mysticism was part of Platonism, why mysticism is part of Eastern religions. So, in verse 3, John makes it clear that the Logos is distinct from creation, so all creation is subordinate and is to be subjected to its Creator. And then, in verses 4 and 5, we see that the Logos is equated to light. Light is always used in Scripture to express revelation. 
He is light. He is the revealer of God. And in verse 5, His revelation is rejected. And there is a contrast that is so powerful throughout all of John's writings between light and dark. We are born in the kingdom of darkness. That's in Colossians. Paul says that. And when we're saved, we're transferred into the kingdom of light. John says in John chapter 1 that as believers, even though we are born in the kingdom of light, we can still live like we're in the kingdom of darkness. And we're not to walk in darkness, but to walk in the light. And how do we do that? How do we go from walking in darkness to walking in the light? Number one, we do it through confession of sin. And number two, we do it by learning and applying Bible doctrine in our lives as believers. It starts here at salvation. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But if we're going to live like we're in the kingdom of light, live on the basis of truth, then we have to learn and study the truth. And that brings us down to verse 6. This is the witness to the light of the eternal Logos. The first five verses tell us all about the eternal Logos and who He is. In verses 6 through 8, we see the witness. Verse 6, There was a man named John sent from God. There was a man named John. Now notice... I want you to notice this in your... It probably is apparent in your English Bible. No, it's not. There was a man, there came a man, sent from God, whose name was John. Now, there's a tremendous contrast going on here between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ in these verses. The main point that the Apostle John is trying to make here is that Jesus Christ, the Logos, is superior to all religious teachers. And he uses John the Baptist as his example because John the Baptist is the greatest of all religious teachers. He had an incredible impact in the Roman Empire. He's spoken of by Josephus in his book on the history of the Jews. He says, tells us several things that we know about John the Baptist. But his fame spread far and wide throughout the Roman Empire. We know that from these extra-biblical sources, but we also know it from a little episode in Acts chapter 18 and 19. I'll just read it to you. In Acts 18.24, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, that means he was born in Alexandria, so he's, he's Egyptian, he's a Greek Egyptian. He's an eloquent man. He came to Ephesus. He was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, And being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but being only acquainted with the baptism of John. So he doesn't know about Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. Jew from Jerusalem. He's a Greek from Alexandria, and now he's up in Ephesus. So we see how John the Baptist's teaching has spread, and his fame had spread throughout the Roman Empire. And then in Acts 19.1, Paul comes to Ephesus, and it came about that or in Corinth, excuse me, came about that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, I'm getting confused. Apollos is in Corinth. Paul's in Ephesus. Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples, and he said to them, "Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?" And they said to him, "No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit." And he said, "Into what then were you baptized?" And they said, "Into John's baptism." So here we have a community in Ephesus of 
John the Baptist's disciples. And this is probably some 20 years or so after the crucifixion. So from this we infer very clearly that John the Baptist's fame had spread throughout the empire and there was a devoted religious following. In fact, it was discovered that there was a sect down in, 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 uh, in the Persian area that even a thousand years after, after Christ, that this sect traced, was hostile to Christianity and traced its origins and allegiance back to John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist didn't foster that. He had his priorities right and he knew who he was. But there were some of these followers of John the Baptist who set up a separate cult in his name. So John the Baptist isn't just some minor religious figure who operates down in Palestine. He is a major religious figure of his day whose fame spread far and wide throughout the Roman Empire. So John makes a point. Now remember where John is. Remember where John is at this point. John is an old man by the time he writes the Gospel of John. And he's in Ephesus. What happened in Ephesus? There was this group of disciples of John. So we can infer from this that John has to make this point to those around him because there's still some who are, who are following John the Baptist and not Jesus. So he wants to make a contrast with John the Baptist to show that Jesus, the Logos, is superior to all the prophets. It says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. Now, there's some real striking contrasts here that John the Apostle is making. First of all, over here we're going to have John B., John the Baptist, and over here we're going to have the Lord Jesus Christ. Related to John the Baptist, there's the first statement, there was what? A man. So it clearly states that he is a man. In contrast, the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to by the title Logos. The next thing we notice, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. So he comes from God. That means he's a creature. So John the Baptist is a creature. But what does it say about the Lord Jesus Christ? All things came into being by him and not one thing that has come into being came any other way. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the creator of everything. John chapter 1, verse 3. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Third contrast. John the Baptist came into being, came into existence, and Jesus Christ always existed. There never was a time when this Jesus did not exist. He is fully God. That's the point of everything in this passage. John the Baptist is sent from God. Jesus is God. Fifth point. John the Apostle makes it clear that John the Baptist was not the light, but Jesus was the light. Look at what he says. He came for a witness 
that he might bear witness of the light. He's not the light. He's going to bear witness of the light. And of Jesus it says in verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So, he is light. John the Baptist is a witness to the light, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the light who shines in the darkness. The Lord Jesus Christ is superior to John the Baptist. Now, why does John come? John comes to give a testimony to who Jesus is. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that there's all kinds of different testimonies in this Gospel. There's the testimony of John the Baptist. There's the testimony of God the Father. There's the testimony of God the Holy Spirit. There's the testimony of the Scripture. Now, if we were to take the time to evaluate every one of these testimonies, we would see that none of them are subjective. What often happens in churches, so you have somebody that comes in, give their testimony. They stand up in front of the congregation and they say, let me tell you about what Jesus did for me. I know Jesus died for me because He lives within my heart. It's subjective. How do you know it's true? Because I've had this personal experience. That's how I know it's true. That's not what the Bible says is true. When you look at this, it's very objective. How do you know it's true? There are evidences. There are things that happen in space-time history that are objective, that are demonstrable, that give clear and certain proof that Jesus is who He claimed to be and that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So over and over again, the Apostle John is going to make it clear to one and all that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And he does this primarily through the signs that Jesus performs, the miracles that he performed, because there were hundreds of witnesses to all of those miracles. Extrapolated from that, we come to the doctrine of witnessing, which we'll get to primarily next week. What is the doctrine of witnessing? The doctrine of witnessing, in summation, is that every believer, every person who believes in Jesus Christ, is immediately commissioned at the point of salvation into full-time Christian service. And your mission field, your job is that wherever you are, your work, play, neighborhood, whatever it is that you do, you have a responsibility to witness. How do you do that? That's what we're going to find out. It focuses on the Gospel. The Scriptures are very clear. As we saw this morning, man is here, God is here. What separates man from God is sin. You have to understand, if you're going to witness, you have to understand these basic principles. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not a few, not five or six. Every single human being has sinned. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, spiritual death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, I'm giving you a really simple gospel presentation 
that often goes by the name the Roman Road because all the passages come out of Romans. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. What's the solution? The solution is Romans 5.7. But God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. That's the Gospel. Christ died for you. What do you have to do? Go to Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's all you have to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you'll have eternal life. You can't do anything good enough to earn God's approval. God is absolutely perfect righteousness. That means what He demands is absolute perfection. One sin and you're out. And the problem for all of us is that the Scripture says, in Adam all die. That's strike one. Because we're descendants from Adam, we all have a sin nature. That's strike two. Because we all have a sin nature, we all commit personal sins. That's strike three. Three indictments against every single human being that keeps them from ever coming up to the perfect righteousness of God so that Scripture says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. It's garbage in God's sight. No matter how good you are, you can never come close to the absolute standards. So God did all the work. He sent His Son to the cross to die on the cross for our sins and to pay the penalty so that every single sin in human history was poured out on Jesus Christ. God the Father is omniscient. Omniscient, that means that God knows everything. He knows every sin that every human being will commit in history. Past, present, future. You will never commit a sin that God the Father didn't know about billions and billions and billions of years ago. And that means that billions of years ago, God designed a plan whereby He would take every single sin committed in human history and He would pour that sin out on Jesus Christ on the cross. His perfect Son, who although He was full deity, did not think equality with God was something to be grasped at in arrogance, but lowered Himself, willingly limited the use of His divine attributes for a time. And He became a man. He became so that He was undiminished deity and true humanity united forever in one person. And on the cross, He who knew no sin was made sin as a substitute for us. All that's needed is for you to say, Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, this is the perfect opportunity for you to make the most important decision you will ever make in your life. And that relates to your eternal destiny. The Scriptures are very clear that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, absolutely no one, can come to the Father except by Me. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Scriptures clearly claim there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So right now with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you've never made this most important decision in your life, you have the opportunity to do so. All you have to do in the privacy of your own soul 
forming the words in thought alone, say, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sake, for my salvation. I'm putting my faith and trust in Him alone. That's all, all you need to do. By your faith in Jesus Christ, God immediately regenerates you and gives you another 39 things that are yours eternal possession as a child of God. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. It's a free gift from the love of God expressed through His grace. Father, now as we go about our week, I pray that You would remind us of the things that we have learned today, the importance of Your Scripture, the depth and power of it, and that it would truly transform our lives, and that the Holy Spirit would store these principles in our soul and remind us of them that we may apply them as we grow towards spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.